What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, October 14th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Matty, it's going pretty well, dude. How about you? No complaints on this fine, fine Friday. I'm loving fall. We got some foliage. No complaints here. Yeah, foliage is still on the trees. Trees are not bare yet, which is nice, too, because once that happens, you're just like, oh, God, we're in it. We're stuck for the long haul. But the I was just reading an article about this the other day. The silver lining here is we're done with daylight savings, hopefully, um, after November 2023. Like forever? Yeah. So that bill was like pretty much going to get like unanimously passed. Hopefully. We'll see. I don't want to knock on wood. Um, but yeah, we'll be done with that and we'll have more daylight to uh, go around in, in the winter. We can we can definitely do like a full feature story episode about that because I'm I'm actually on the the opposite side of the fence here. I'm I'm not pushing for that because really? yeah. So basically, without turning this into a whole discussion before the episode starts, um, <laughs> the the good side of getting rid of daylight savings is like there's a lot of studies that it would have a really positive impact on on mental health and on physical health to right. basically have more sunlight year round. Mm-hmm. The the energy efficiency side of it is potentially an issue because it it costs more and requires more energy to power everything up than it takes to keep it running. So if we have to use you know our heat and our lights for an hour more in the morning, that is costlier than the sun rising earlier and then using our lights later on in the day or something like that was the gist of it. So whenever that potentially passes, we'll definitely dive into it. And who knows, maybe my opinion will change as I, as I'm able to say more about it. Cause right now I could be totally misunderstanding that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We, we should definitely do an episode on it. Cause it's, I think it's something that people actually care about. That's something that they, uh, it's a polarizing issue, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just from like a, what would I like better? I think I would like more sunlight more often. <laughs> so like, I, yeah. I think I would go for that, but I, I would need to see what the energy efficiency looks like. Cause I am fine with getting rid of a little bit of my own happiness to get us off fossil fuels quicker. So that's where I'm at. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's a good point. All right. Now that we've basically done a, a full episode, no, I'm just kidding. Let's get into the actual episode right now. Over the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Graham Green and Karen McVeigh of The Guardian, who write, COP27 Climate Summit's sponsorship by Coca-Cola condemned as greenwash. Next month, when COP27 meets in Egypt, world leaders will once again meet for the 27th time to discuss the climate crisis and what we as a global community will do about it. This year's conference is brought to you by Coca-Cola, who have been called the world's top polluter by an environmental group. 
Many campaigners are accusing Coca-Cola of greenwashing by sponsoring the climate talks while heavily contributing to our plastic problem. A group called Break Free from Plastic found that Coca-Cola is the world's top plastic polluter over four years of annual brand audits. So a coordinator for the group named Emma Priestlin called this sponsorship astounding. Yeah, this is like having McDonald's sponsor an event called like Save the Cows or something like that. Like It's just <laughs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But a petition started by a delegate last November at COP26 called for no more corporate sponsorships for the COP meetings. There were hopes that this would begin by removing Coca-Cola sponsorship. Greenpeace USA's John Hosevar added Coca-Cola produces 120 billion throwaway plastic bottles a year and 99% of plastics are made from fossil fuels, worsening both the plastic and climate crisis. What's equally concerning is that Coca-Cola has not even acknowledged how bad the plastic problem is or how they're going to meet their own climate goals without ending their reliance on plastics. The best they've done is say that they believe that the plastic issue should be tackled through a holistic approach. They also said that they will reduce their emissions by 25% by the end of this decade while reaching net zero in 2050. Coca-Cola's vice president of operations of North Africa said that the company believes that working together through meaningful partnerships will help the people of Egypt and the world. I'm not really sure what that has to do with the plastic problem, but that was his statement. (laughs) Coca-Cola's official statement says, We share the goal of eliminating waste from the ocean and appreciate efforts to raise awareness about this challenge. We are prepared to do our part and have set ambitious goals for our business, starting with helping to collect and recycle a bottle or can for every one we sell, regardless of where it comes from by 2030. Yay, they're really doing it, you know, (laughs) making sure that all the plastic bottles that are getting produced for them, at least one gets recycled. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's lazy to me. They're they're kind of just saying, hey, tell us what to do and we're going to do it by the end of this decade, which uh, is better than nothing. But they know what the issue is. They know that plastics are wreaking havoc on our environment and our oceans. They know that plastics are produced by fossil fuels, which are wreaking havoc on our oceans, our environments, our atmosphere. But they are just going to take the corporate approach of waiting until they can't wait anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And like you couldn't ask for a lower goal like that is just like the most simple goal to have as a company when you're that big when you are coca-cola yeah like literally the leader they don't have they don't just have like coke they have a bunch of other brands and even like food brands too and like to have that low of a goal it's like dude you got to do more yeah and and the main thing that people will bring up with plastics is like it's so much cheaper to use plastic than it is to use aluminum or it is to use glass this isn't scientific at all, but Coke out of a glass bottle just tastes better. We <laughs> know this, but from an actual like logistical standpoint, is Coke really worried about their bottom lines that much where like you are going to buy so much aluminum or recycled aluminum at scale that the cost per bottle is probably a marginal difference for, I don't know how many billions of dollars Coca-Cola makes per year. Like Mm -hmm. we're not talking about a small company that can't afford that switch. Coca-Cola can afford that switch. And what they're going to do is come out with some statements as, you know, we could switch to aluminum, but it's going to cost our consumers 
X amount per year to upgrade our bottles to, yeah, to yeah, glass yeah. and our, you know, pump out more cans. How about just make sure your CEO doesn't make a buttload of money while the rest <laughs> of us are just trying to live on a planet in 50 years that's inhabitable for humans. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Well said. All right. Let's get into our next story here from AOL. How about that? <laughs> Sophie Wingate writes, Liz Truss opposes placing solar panels on farmland. Downing Street says. Yeah, I was also shocked when I, when I found this article, like where I found it. Uh, so shout out to AOL. My, my first, my first screen. Never mind. Never mind. We're not doing this on it. <laughs> anyway, the new prime minister of England, Liz Truss, is off to a hot start. And by hot, I mean, you know, the planet is going to keep getting hotter if we continue to have policies like this one. She is opposing. <laughs> thank you. She is opposing the installation of solar panels on productive agricultural lands, as some ministers of parliament look to restrict the development of solar projects on farms in England. Environment Secretary Ranil Jayawardena understood wanting to protect farmland amid concerns over food security. He is considering redefining land categories to make sure that solar is difficult to install on farmland. The Prime Minister's office says Liz Truss wants to find the balance between food security and energy security, but believes that farm owners should decide how to best use their land, not the government. The solar industry has criticized this decision, saying it would put the environment secretary in the, quote, anti-growth coalition she rallied against in her speech at her party's conference last week. Solar Energy UK CEO Chris Hewitt called the decision alarming and added, solar power is the answer to so many needs and policy demands. It will cut energy bills, deliver energy security, boost growth, and help rural economies. Energy Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg incorrectly said that grass under solar panels would be as poor as the grass under the trampoline in his yard, while dismissing agrivoltaics during the annual conservatives gathering. Yes, in reality, sheep have been largely successful in grazing farmland co-inhabited by solar panels for pretty much all of the pilot studies that I've read about sheep as a form of agrivoltaics. There's also studies showing that beekeeping works really well with solar. You can grow certain crops very well, including blueberries on mixed-use agriculture and solar lands. So agrivoltaics when done correctly works very well and it benefits both you know you can get crops that grow well in the shade and plant them under the panels that increased vegetation under the panels absorbs some of the heat from the sun and that actually helps the panels generate more energy because they stay a little bit cooler so it's a win-win when you do it right and all it would take here is just making sure that farmers are well equipped with how to do that right so to just say that you know, solar panels are going to leave your grass dead like this guy's trampoline. Yeah, that's that's flat out wrong. Yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's very easy to just say, oh, it's going to be like my trampoline grass. Like it's just going to be dead and and it's going to ruin my farmland, whatever. We're we're figuring out ways to to make more than one use out of this land. And it's all about education. It's all about educating these farmers about the correct practices and how they can make their land dual use and not just put solar panels on it for for the sake of doing so yeah and, and i do think it's a little bit ironic that liz trust was like the farmers should decide how they can use their land not the government although me as the government you're not going to be able to do this like give people <laughs> the option right if that's yeah. how you feel equip people with the right information and give people the option and when i say that you know that there's going to be anti 
uh, anti-solar groups that come out and say like, Hey, this is going to kill your grass. Look at my trampoline. Like, you, you know that there's going to be the misinformation campaigns, but mm-hmm. give people the opportunity to make those decisions themselves. And, you know, when you see that you can cut back on your energy bills, make money off the solar while still growing some of the crops that you'd be growing anyway, it seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. The only thing I can think of is like maybe you don't have the climate necessary for let's say growing blueberries or whatever the yeah whatever the plant may be but yeah you could still grow something else under it that that is resilient and and works in in the climate that you have yeah so england's new government has faced a backlash after lifting england's fracking ban in place since 2019 following series of earth tremors and giving the green light to expansion of oil and gas operations in the north sea this news that nick and i just covered here is some more fun i guess environmental news from across the pond but yeah it's it's been pretty discouraging to see boris johnson and now liz trust just kind of throwing caution to the wind with their environmental goals yeah yep it's unfortunate all right the next one is titled the first utility scale renewable energy plant combining solar and wind generation with battery storage opens in the u.s by peter johnson for electric This is super cool, in my opinion, and I think it's really exciting news for any of the renewable energy fans here in the U.S. As a power plant that can power up to 100,000 homes with renewable and reliable energy is now open. The Wheat Ridge Renewable Energy Facility opened in Oregon with a goal of reducing emissions from the power sector for its customers by 80% by the end of this decade. The facility generates wind and solar power and also has standalone battery storage. This could pave the way for more facilities to mix wind and solar, which are now eligible for federal incentives thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Combining wind with solar improves reliability to the electric grid, and adding battery storage means that surplus energy that isn't used while the sun is shining and the wind is blowing can be stored until off hours. Nextera Energy CEO Rebecca Kujawa said these facilities generate low-cost homegrown energy and will provide millions of dollars in additional tax revenue to Morrow County over the life of the project. So this is one of those cool projects where it benefits the people, the planet, and the local economy. Mm, Yeah, for sure. The Wheat Ridge facility contains 300 megawatts of wind capacity, a 50-megawatt solar energy facility, and a 30-megawatt battery storage facility. It created an estimated 300 jobs during construction and employs 10 full-time employees now that it is actually operating. Before you get my opinion and Nick's, Electric's opinion on this news was that this can provide a big advantage over solar or wind alone. The author writes, hybrid systems like these can generate energy essentially at any point. When the sun is shining, it can generate power from solar. And when the sun is not as intense in winter months, it can generate energy from the wind and store it for use later. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for this. I think it's great. I think it's awesome to see that, you know, wind and solar are often grouped together when we talk about the slice of the renewable pie that each gets to, to use them together on one facility, I think is an excellent excellent idea and you know the last story we talked about was dual use agrivoltaics i'm all about dual use you know get the most bang for your buck and in this case it's just a ton of cost savings for people and a ton of renewable reliable energy yeah a hundred percent i agree with everything you just said and i'm wondering like is this the first time that we've seen standalone battery storage for wind and solar power like this Kind of. It's the first time at utility scale that we've seen battery storage used for both wind and solar together. 
battery storage is a big part of utility scale wind and solar because transmission is a big part of, you know, like how do we get this energy to people? So battery storage is a bit, is a big piece of that, but to have a system like this, where you have utility scale solar, utility scale wind together on the same facility with a battery that is receiving energy from both of them. This is the first time I've seen that. So I can't say for certain, like, yes, this is the first time. Yeah. 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 But Hey, if anyone out there listening has seen anything else like this, let us know. Yeah. I mean, this is just so insane because like, when is it not, I don't know. There's very few times I feel like where there's not like wind or sun. Yeah. So what's interesting is like the reason that this had never really been pushed before is because incentives just didn't really work where you would get wind and solar credit. So it was usually more cost effective to just do one. But the Inflation Reduction Act that passed actually does give an opportunity for wind and solar dual use facilities to receive federal incentives. So this could be looked at as kind of a pilot program or or the blueprint for how you do this well. And if we start seeing things like this pop up all the time, that is great great news for people who like clean energy, cheap energy, reliable energy, whatever you want to yeah. call it. This is good news. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And to go back to our episode last weekend about the big oil companies, um, Hey, here's a great, here's a great idea to put money towards. Like you're, you're getting incentives from, from the government for this. Why not? They don't care. They just want more, more dollars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right, Maddie. All right. What we want right now is for you to stick around until after the break where we have two more quick hits for you. The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, meet the California farmers awash in Colorado River water, even in a drought by NPR's Dan Charles. The Colorado River is still facing a major drought, which we spoke about on our September 16th episode. If you want to go back and give that a quick listen, a few hundred farms in Southern California are using more water from this drought ridden river than the states of Nevada and Arizona combined. Wow. Those farms could be the key to saving the Colorado River. The farms have the legal rights to use the water, but are being pressured to give up some of their allotted water. They're located in the Imperial Valley. 50% of the valley is desert, 
but the other 50% is full of green fields and irrigation canals. This area gets less attention than California's Central Valley, which is the nation's leading producer of produce and nuts. The Central Valley gets much of its water from rain and snow in the Sierra Mountains, or underground aquifers. The Imperial Valley only gets its water from the Colorado River. The fields benefited from a canal started in 1901 from the Colorado River. Since most of the Imperial Valley is below sea level, the water was able to flow from the Colorado by gravity. The current canal, which was built during the New Deal and called the All-American Canal, delivers enough water each year to cover all of its irrigated land with five feet of water. So we're talking about almost 800 square miles of fields with five feet of water. The water is currently a topic for debate because the Colorado River does not have enough water for everyone to just keep using as much as they want. Yeah. So the way the law works for water rights west of the Mississippi River is first come, first serve. Since the Imperial Valley was established before cities like Phoenix or Tucson were even built, those cities would get cut off before the farms. The author writes that no one realistically expects the cities to get cut off, and farmers acknowledge that people need water for health and safety, although swimming pools and lawns are a different story. The farmers also know that the legal rights don't really matter if there's no water to have rights to. So cutting back is important. If nothing changes, Lake Mead will stop flowing through the Hoover Dam and the, the Imperial Valley will lose out on a critical water supply. Farmers are hoping for a deal where the government would pay them to use less water, and some draft plans include paying farmers per acre of farmland in exchange for cutting water use by roughly 20%. The thought here is farmers will lose out on revenue, so they would be paid for those damages to protect the river. One way for farmers to cut past 20% water usage would be to buy new, more water-efficient irrigation equipment or to plant less alfalfa or grasses, which are water-intensive and get baled into hay to feed cattle and horses. Aside from farmers, roughly 180,000 people, most of them Mexican-American, live in the Imperial Valley. Imperial County is already one of the poorest in California, and some fear that less water and less farming means fewer jobs and economic decline. On the other hand, the region is also full of some of the country's richest farmers, many of them white, who have wealth and power associated with claiming that water and claiming those water rights a long, long time ago. So this is a really weird intersection of, you know, you have the, the legality of who is allowed to use this water you have the historical wealth of, you know, the, the farmers who were able to claim the rights to that water. You have the food security issue. You have drought. <laughs> you have like internal environmental justice. You have like racial justice because there's a lot of Mexican-Americans living there and then they're much poorer than the white farmers. So basically every issue that you could imagine related to water rights gets lumped up in this case study of the Imperial Valley. Yeah, and when you're talking about using more water than Nevada and Arizona combined, that's got to be like way more than you could ever possibly need. Like we can all do our part to reduce your water usage because ultimately we are not going to be in the same situation as we are today if we continue this amount of consumption. Yeah, and I think it's an important distinction to make that reducing 
water usage on a farm is very, very different than we talked about last week with reducing water usage in our homes, in celebrities' right, gardens. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, this is something where is it being overused? I tend to agree with Nick, and I, I, I would say yes. And I think the overuse comes from what we are planting, you know, in, in desert. Exactly. In an area that is a desert that the reason that there's luscious fields is because there's water irrigated in. Why are we planting grass? Why are we planting alfalfa? Those are not crops that will grow well there because they're water intensive. Yeah. That's waste, but more useful than say just having a really fancy garden and like a big infinity pool with a huge water fountain in the middle, like a celebrity mansion in Las Virgenes, LA you know, the, look, what we talked about different or last week, sorry, what we talked about last week is different and they're both wasteful. This one you can, uh, you can justify a little more, but it's still something that needs to be cut back. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Like, yes, they are producing food and California is one of the biggest states in providing food for the entire country. So mm-hmm. like, I understand like there is a lot of uh, produce and agriculture, whatever farming that comes out of there and is, is transported to states. So we would not have the same amount of food at our grocery stores if, the, if they did not produce this much food. But with that being said, like it's, you got to plant stuff that is local. You know, like we cannot continue to just blaze through our water yeah. trying to feed grasses that's really not going to do that much in drought-ridden California. I think something people need to get more comfortable with is eating vegetables and fruits that are in season locally Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for how many years like we, we didn't have avocados in the grocery store 12 months out of the year. Yeah, so true. Y- you know, it's it's one of the, the big benefits to society now that you can get fruits and vegetables from around the world whenever you want at your local grocery store. It, it's a good thing. But in the same breath, is it? Yeah, I know. It's a good point. It's it's like that's probably either getting imported from somewhere that like is taking up a massive amount of emissions from the transportation it costs to actually bring it to you. Mm-hmm. Or like you're trying to produce it when it shouldn't be grown. Or yeah. the third option is greenhouses. You know, there's greenhouses around the country where you can produce crops because you create an environment they grow in year round. Right. So if you're getting your vegetables from greenhouses, then ignore our little our little rant Spiel. there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of food waste, though, and food from the grocery store. Let's move on to the next one. Yes. So our last quick hit of the week is from the Associated Press, where Deanne Durbin writes, keep it or toss it. Best before labels cause confusion. This is a pretty cool article for limiting our own food waste at home. So we figured it's a great way to close out the show for the week. We have all definitely seen and possibly, probably been confused by best before labels on certain foods. (laughs) You know, there's the use by dates that are on meat and dairy. Those are to make sure they're consumed before bacteria grows and they become unsafe. But best before or enjoy by, consume by, those other different labels that we've seen, those are not safety related and they often lead to a lot of people throwing out food that's still perfectly fine to consume. Yeah, for sure. So Patty Apple, a manager at the nonprofit Food Shift, says that people will read the best before dates and throw out the food thinking that it's gone bad. 
Her nonprofit collects and uses expired or imperfect foods to combat this. Some major chains in the United Kingdom have removed the best before labels from fruits and vegetables, while the European Union is expected to revamp its labeling laws by the end of this year. In the United States, there is no similar push to get rid of best before labels, but there is a growing movement to standardize the labeling and educate people about food waste. The United Nations estimates that 17% of global food production is wasted each year. Most of that comes from households. In the United States, as much as 35% of food available goes uneaten, according to Refed, a nonprofit that studies food waste. And food waste doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it's not as simple as saying, the apple in my fridge went bad, I threw out an apple. When you look at the bigger picture, we're also wasting the water that was used to grow the vegetable, the land that was used to grow the vegetable, or same with, same with meat, you know, the water that was used to grow the crops that are fed to the cow, the land that they use for grazing, and in some cases, the deforestation that occurred to acquire that land for grazing, the labor, the energy required to grow and transport the food. It, all of these things exist in the umbrella of food waste. And unwanted food waste also ends up in landfills. So you're looking at additional land use and higher greenhouse gas emissions than if that food was just eaten. Refed estimates that 7% of food waste in the United States is because of the best before labels. Wow. Yeah, so there are no federal laws over best before labels. So manufacturers can determine when they believe their products will taste best. The FDA suggests consumers look for changes in color, consistency, or texture to determine if foods are all right to eat. If I don't know if something is good, like if I don't have a good gauge as to like what it's supposed to look like when it's bad, I'll just look it up. I'll be like, okay, when does, let's say, eggplant go bad? Like, well, mm -hmm. how can I tell if an eggplant is bad? Yeah, I would say smell is a big one. And then um, feel, too. Like if yes. something is just like mushy in your hands or it doesn't like bounce back for some vegetables, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty good determining sign that it's probably bad. Yeah, 100%. And that's way smarter than what I usually do. I almost never look it up. I just kind of, <laughs> like, you know it when you see it. So I'll do the sniff test. Yeah. If it smells funky, I would assume it's not great to eat. And like <laughs> the article pointed out something where it was like the human body is very, very good at determining food that is unsafe. So <laughs> just trust your gut. Nice. Like our bodies have evolutionarily been like hardwired to say, I probably shouldn't eat this. <laughs> so <laughs> I also think it's like a, a learn as you go thing. Like if you have something yeah. and you're like, oh, I made this might've been bad. And then like, you just get whatever, not food poisoning, but like you just get sick or something or like you go to the bathroom and it's not fun. You know, for next time you've learned and you'll be smarter about it next time. Speaking of being smarter for next time, some food manufacturers are working smarter to basically move to standardize the labeling. So any sort of uniformity on what best before or use by dates mean will get rid of some of the confusion over when something should be sold, eaten, enjoyed, or, or whatever it is that that label actually says. Yeah, and some people often suggest donating food that's past its expiration date, but is still safe to eat. 
but at least 20 states currently prohibit the sale or donation of food after the date listed on the label because of liability fears. Yeah, and that's something that anyone who's spoken to somebody about food waste has probably heard. Oh, well, why don't why doesn't the grocery store just donate it? You know, there's starving people here. We have mm-hmm. a, a big hunger problem here in, in the states. True, fair. The reason that they don't is because if somebody gets sick, they are liable for giving them the food. So a lot right. of states just prohibit that altogether. But, I mean... Let's think about what kind of food we're talking about. No one's going to take very severely rotten meat and eat that if the grocery store gives it to you. If you have a box of dried pasta and it says like best before October 14th, 2022, and tomorrow you go and grab that box out of your pantry, Mm -hmm. it's fine. We're talking about dried pasta here. Like it's flour and water. There's like... Yep. There are certain things that who cares about the expiration date? Pickles, like pickles are made to be preserved. <laughs> as long as they're not getting like moldy and like something's growing off it, you can eat a pickle past the best before date. So Exactly. There there are things where you should avoid it, like meat and dairy and those sort of products, but when you know, you know. And honestly, like I've never been concerned about pasta being past expiration date. Now both of us growing up with Italian mothers, we've never had pasta <laughs> reach the expiration date. But, <laughs> but if fact. we did, I'm sure I would eat it. There is a constant cycling of pastas <laughs> in and out, in and out. Yeah, there might be though. There actually might be like in the way back, just because like my mom doesn't clean the pantry enough. But um, yeah, I mean like for most foods, you're going to be fine past the expiration date. My yeah. girlfriend makes fun of me for it all the time. I'll eat something past the expiration date. Because it's not just about the date. It's about smelling it. It's about, like, looking at it. And sometimes I'll even taste it just to make sure. I'm a huge leftovers guy, too. That's another thing. Yeah. You got to have leftovers because if you just keep throwing out food one night after you make it, you're just going to keep buying more food that you really don't have to be in and consuming more than you should be um, at the grocery store. And then the other thing I was going to say is throw stuff in the freezer. Yeah. Like if you if you know you're not going to be able to use let's say ground beef or something you buy at the store within like 4 or 5 days in the fridge, you got to move it to the freezer. Like you just have to. It's just otherwise it's just going to go bad. It's not going to smell good and it's going to smell up your whole um refrigerator. Yeah. Well said. All right. I think this was a great episode of TPT. Hope you did too. And that's going to do it for this episode. On Monday, we are going to be back for this month's interview. Yes. So Matt spoke with Anastasios Arima about his company, Iperion X, Energy Independence and Titanium. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod and send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com. You can also toss me a follow on Twitter at Matt Norden if you're looking to do that. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. And I just threw out that um, Doja Cat remix. It is up. Amazing. Let's bump that this weekend. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.